Welcome to the Burning Archive Podcast. I am Jeff Rich and the Burning Archive Podcast is about history. Regrettably, a lot of history is about war. Even more regrettably, we live, it seems, today in a time of war. Well, welcome everyone. It's obviously been many distressing events over the last couple of weeks, well, over the last couple of years since I began this podcast in early 2021. We've had wars in Afghanistan. We've had wars in many parts of the world. Also the war in Ukraine and now a new escalation in the conflicts in Middle East or Western Asia, in Israel, Palestine and related countries. Ah, and it's just many, many, many distressing events, many distressing scenes over the recent days. Uh, so I'm going to talk about that today. I'm going to try to follow a sort of a three-part structure where I talk a little bit about the general situation with a little bit of a focus, I guess, on the diplomatic situation as it played out in the United Nations at a key vote in the United Nations Security Council, I think, on October the 18th. And then I kind of really want to talk about how to approach history, I guess, amidst these events and to try to do so with a compassionate mindset to um, not get caught up in potentially disastrous emotional commitments in a time of war, even though obviously a time of war evokes those kind of commitments. And then finally, I want to talk a little bit about how practically one can nurture empathy rather than nurse grievance when reflecting on war, including through a recommendation for a very important book to read in this time of war. So that's what the show is going to look like today. Let me just remind everyone, you can sign up to my free weekly newsletter at jeffrich.substack.com. I provide a weekly newsletter, fragments of the Burning Archive, where I look at various stories and aspects of the evolving world history of our times, the imperial rivalries, the social conflicts, the political disorder of our times, and the glimmers of cultural renewal. And every week I also do what I call a world history view, where I try to look at the bigger picture of world history, uh, look at events of uh, the week, of the recent times, through a bigger picture of uh, world history. Last week I looked at the article was described, was titled The Price of Great Historical Transformations, and it looked in particular at the way in which sometimes people think they have achieved momentous historical change, as perhaps America did after the end of the Cold War. At virtually no price, but in fact a very great price has been paid. It may not have entirely been visible at the time. And I also explore the idea of civilizations, which I've also discussed commonly on this podcast. So 
jeffrich.substack.com. Please join and subscribe. Uh, You can also support me for a paid subscription there if you enjoy my writing. Okay, so let's talk about the situation in Israel and Palestine. And we're confronted here clearly with a humanitarian catastrophe. We've seen a series of shocking, shocking events uh, and thousands now, thousands of civilian casualties all in a little more than a week. And a very serious, very, very serious risks of an expanding regional conflict or even a global war. Various warnings have been issued. Risks of miscalculation are absolutely on the cards. There are two big American aircraft carriers placed in the Mediterranean and threatening potentially to attack, I don't know, Hamas or Iran or engage in some kind of military action. American senators have said that America should bomb Iran's uh, oil facilities, which will do wonders for petrol prices around the world. And Russian President Vladimir Putin has said that America should be aware, he's not warning America, but it should be aware of the fact that its aircraft carriers in the Mediterranean are within range of Russian, Chinese and Iranian hypersonic missiles, which they have no defence against. So I fear we are entering into a long period of conflict, a time of war, and uh, I don't want to get into the particulars of the Israel-Palestine conflict or the history of that. At this point, I don't want to comment on any of the particular incidents that have been occurred. Obviously, I deplore all the suffering uh, and the deaths and uh, the, the the trauma and the, the horror of the events uh, over the last 10 days or so. And, but there's also enormous amounts of uh, conflicting interpretations and he said, she said type events at the moment. And I, I simply don't know enough about the particulars of the situation to really comment on any of that. I'm more reflecting myself on just this sense that we definitely feel now like, I mean, there has been the war going on in Ukraine for, well, since March 2022 getting on to two years, 18 months. But this seems to be increasing tensions around the world. There have been enormous demonstrations of support for both sides uh, in different places all around the world. Citizens are being mobilised, I guess, through their emotional emotions to stand with one side or other in this conflict to potentially give their support to actions that their leaders and they as citizens may later regret or may even already regret. We're also clearly confronted with a new diplomatic scenario. There has been, I guess, a mobilisation 
of opinion. Perhaps surprisingly, given the the shock and the outrage of the initial attacks, there has been a mobilisation of opinion uh, with concern about the way in which both Israel and the United States are handling the humanitarian situation, the risks of a humanitarian catastrophe. Antonio Guterres, the Secretary of the United Nations, has said we are standing on the abyss. And as the, I guess, the leading diplomat for peace in the world, as Secretary General of the United Nations, with all the flaws of that institution, we should perhaps heed that warning and maybe stand a step back from the abyss. We've also seen contrasts, a meeting between President Biden and Prime Minister Netanyahu in Israel, which largely seemed to focus on some commentary about the horrific blast at a hospital in Israel where approximately 500, uh, there have been approximately 500 civilian casualties and claim and counterclaim as to whether the blast was caused by an Israeli and American supplied bomb or by a, a rocket shot by Islamic jihadists. And in a more dignified setting, there has also been debate at the United Nations Security Council uh, and that debate has focused on resolutions by proposed initially by Russia and then a second resolution proposed by the current president of the United Nations Security Council, not a permanent men- member, but the current president, Brazil, on how to deal with the humanitarian crisis and, the, and, and how to arrange potentially a ceasefire to enable immediate humanitarian aid to uh, be arranged in uh, Gaza particularly, but uh, dealing with the Israel-Gaza crisis. Uh, And the Israel-Gaza crisis is the term used by the United Nations on its official uh, website. I've seen people refer to the Israel-Hamas war and uh, such things, but Israel-Gaza crisis is the term used by the United Nations. So I think I might use that term. So initially, Russia proposed a resolution seeking uh, a ceasefire and uh, immediate humanitarian aid. And it received, uh, I think, five votes in support, four votes against and a large number of abstentions. So abstentions. So it did not pass. It needs to um, get nine votes in order to pass. And but approximately 24 hours later, I mean, soon after that that uh, that vote, indeed, the the blast at the hospital in Israel occurred, and uh, Israel or Gaza, it's a northern Gaza hospital. The United Nations says in the aftermath of an airstrike on a northern Gaza hospital, Brazil uh, put forward a resolution 
that called for humanitarian pauses to allow full, safe and unhindered access for United Nations agencies. Um, and some United Agencies have been bombed and killed in the conflict. Uh, but this resolution did not pass due to a veto cast by a permanent member of the Council, the United States of America. And again, if I just read here from the, the United Nations news item or, or record of the meeting, it said if adopted, the resolution would have condemned all violence and hostilities against civilians and all acts of terrorism and would have unequivocally rejected and condemned the terrorist, terrorist attacks by Hamas that took place in Israel starting on 7th of October. It would have also called for the immediate and unconditional release of all hostages and for the protection of all medical personnel and humanitarian personnel, as well as hospitals and medical facilities consistent with international humanitarian law. But regrettably, the, the vote was vetoed. In fact, 12, it was vetoed by the United States despite 12 council members voting in support, including two permanent members, China and France, with two other permanent members, the United Kingdom and the Russian Federation, abstaining. Now, why would the Russian Federation have abstained on uh, a vote that is very similar to a resolution that they, they had proposed 24 hours previously or 48 hours previously? Uh, it was widely reported that people did not want to be seen to be voting with Russia in the United Nations Security Council. So I would say Russia abstained to enable all those other countries to vote in support of the Brazilian resolution. Only the United Kingdom, really, and the United States did not support the resolution. And yes, so the the uh, the, the regrettably the vote um, was not passed. Now the United Nations news item here also quotes the statements of various parties on the uh, on the vote. And let me just quote in their own words, or as as reported by the United Nations. Honestly and with authenticity, um, the views from Brazil, who proposed a resolution, and the United States of America's ambassador to the United Nations, Linda Thomas-Greenfield's comments. So Sergio Franca Danisi, who's the council president for this month, and I believe is the foreign minister of Brazil, said... We heeded the call. In our view, the council had to take action and to do so very quickly. He said his country had tried to build a unified position. Its focus was on and remains on the critical situation on the ground, adding that the humanitarian law and international law provided a clear path for the action. He said the the text condemned all acts of violence against civilians and called for hostages, immediate release, and for all parties to abide by international legal obligations, including the protection of civilians and civilian infrastructure, 
and stressed the urgent need for humanitarian access. And he comments on the ethical necessity to provide for citizens in Gaza, including electricity, food and medical supplies that have been cut off, at least at times, by Israel. He said, although the resolution was robust and balanced, the Brazilian representative said, sadly, very sadly, the council was yet again unable to adopt a resolution on the conflict and that this silence prevailed to no one's long-term interests. Uh, Hundreds of thousands of civilians in Gaza cannot wait any longer. Actually, they have waited for far too long to no avail. And by contrast, the ambassador from the United States, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, said this... Uh, and look, I won't comment on the words. I will just read directly from the United Nations summary of her statement. Linda Thomas-Greenfield said that President Joseph R. Biden's trip to the region, quote, is a clear demonstration of the fact that the United States is actively engaging at the highest levels. She pointed out that her country, quote, is on the ground doing the hard work of diplomacy, emphasising that while she recognises Brazil's desire to move the draft resolution forward, the Council needs to let that diplomacy, quote, play out. (sighs) Expressing disappointment that the draft did not mention Israel's right to self-defence, she noted that although Washington, D.C. was not able to support the text, it will continue to work on this pressing issue. Quote, when I talk about the protection of civilians, I mean all civilians. She stressed, highlighting that the United States is working to address the humanitarian crisis in in Gaza. Quote, let us all call for the protection of civilians and unequivocally condemn Hamas, she stated, urging member states to support equal measures of justice and freedom. So there we go. We are, it seems, at an impasse as yet in the United Nations Security Council. Interestingly enough, there was a meeting of the uh, of a United Nations Human Rights Council at which the Uh, American ambassador was to speak and a very large proportion of the crowd turned their backs on the United Nations uh, ambassador in a display, I guess, of uh, how the diplomacy might play out. It's all very difficult events and all this is happening while at the same time in China, the 10th anniversary uh, event of the Belt and Road Initiative is happening and significant announcements are happening and uh, there appears to be rather less paralysis uh, diplomatically in that neck of the woods. So we really are confronted with a humanitarian crisis, a potentially expanding regional conflict, thousands of civilian and military casualties, but thousands of civilian casualties, truly shocking images of, uh, you know, injured and terrified children in hospitals and a shockingly inadequate response from some of the diplomats of the world.
But this conflict is not just about the diplomats, it's not just about the terrorists, it's not just about the soldiers or the civilian casualties. It is also, uh, it's an emotional matter for everyone around the world to feel that you're living in a time of war is a difficult, difficult thing. Uh, and it's also a time where the intensity of of the, the various narratives, I guess, as they say, that are presented about what has happened in the last 24 hours but also uh, the narratives of the uh, histories of the events leading up to those events uh, become very intense and highly conflicted people are drawn into uh, taking a stand with one side or another to feel emotionally committed many people are have strong personal family historical cultural connections with one or other of these events the area uh, of this conflict includes you know the 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 dome of the rock and temple of the mount etc so there are deep religious values uh, engaged over this conflict as well it is a difficult time and one I think in which we need to nurture empathy with history rather than nurse grievances. Uh, And that's not necessarily what we're getting in the media, in some of the political discourse. There uh, is uh, understandably a lot of outrage and perhaps not enough compassion, including, uh, you know, compassion for one's enemies like there was a a very moving piece by the distinguished british uh british jewish historian simon sharma author of uh one of my favorite history books about the french revolution citizens uh well known perhaps to some readers of the podcast Uh, And uh, this uh, article by Simon Sharma was called Let Us Be to Grieve, Rage and Weep. And let me just quote here. The first paragraph of this uh, article says, Confronted with enormity, murdered infants, abducted grandmothers, slaughtered villages, lusty chants of gassed Jews at the Free Palestine demonstration in Sydney, Mere words feel like weak carriers of so much horror and sorrow. Journalistic bloviation on the cause of this and the effect of that seems an indecency, at least until the bodies are gathered and returned to families. So context me, no context. Analyze me, no analyses. Suspend your partially informed diagnoses. Leave off your strenuous efforts at even-handedness. Let us be to grieve, rage, weep, say the mourners Kaddish. Totally understandable sentiments. Uh, But as they do, events have progressed somewhat since uh, Simon Sharma's article. Uh, He does note the end of his article that the core Zionist article of faith collapsed last Saturday, not least because of the Netanyahu government's obstinate 
refusal to listen to Israel's security chiefs who warned him that the safety of the country was being imperiled by policies that were dangerously divisive. Whatever the immediate unity of the country, his days as Prime Minister are numbered and his legacy will forever be this catastrophe. But that inevitable departure will not staunch the tears, bring back the dead or heal the trauma. And should there be a ground invasion, innocent Palestinian and Jewish lives will pay a terrible price. Not that Hamas cares about either. And certainly since then, of course, um, a terrible price has been paid and there has been much talk about uh, expelling the Palestinians from Gaza. Um, Simon Sharma ends by saying, but Israel will survive, revive, if only because even in this dreadful extremity, one text from Deuteronomy 30.19 lies at the indefatigably beating heart of Jewish history. I call heaven and earth to record this day against you, that I have set before you life and death, a blessing and a curse. Therefore choose life that, thou, that both thou and thy seed may live. Moving words, moving words. But others have also invoked the eschatological dimensions of this conflict, the religious connotations, I guess, of this conflict. Um, Alexander Dugan talks about a a looming conflict between um, different religious viewpoints. A black flag flew over a mosque in Iran and a text from the Quran circulated on social media indicating that this was a sign of uh, some kind of apocalyptic event. I'm not sure that this kind of heavily invested emotional history about the events is going to help us find a way through uh, this diplomatic impasse and avoid further bloodshed. It could indeed worsen matters uh, we have seen in the case of the Ukraine conflict that history and historians can be used to nurse grievance and a desire for glory. It can bring on a lust for sacrifice for the nation, the religious cause, the, the blood and the soil of the place. And uh, that can be incredibly, incredibly destructive, I do feel. We need a more mindful approach to the history of in this emotionally demanding time and a mindful approach to history that focuses foremost on compassion. It makes me also think of uh, the ending, or near to the end, of the great poem Beowulf, uh, which I did an episode on of on the podcast not so long ago. Beowulf is a story of a hero who ultimately succumbs to death in battle against a great monster, and there is a scene at after his funeral pyre where a woman sings a song of grief called a keening 
of on the funeral pyre and that song of grief it goes beyond grievance for for one side I guess or other it's more the endless cycle of death and destruction in war. It's an incredibly moving piece where the poet poets described the construction of Beowulf's funeral pyre and how uh, the Geet people were disconsolate and wailed aloud for their lord's deceit. But then a Geet woman too sang out in grief. With hair bound up, she unburdened herself of her worst fears, a wild litany of nightmare and lament. Her nation invaded enemies on the rampage, bodies in piles, slavery and abasement. Heaven swallowed the smoke. So she grieves, I guess, for all the victims, all the victims. And I feel in these circumstances more like that Geet woman singing uh, a wild litany. What was the phrase? I feel very much more rather than uh, uh, wailing for one side's decease. I feel more that I have unburdened myself of my worst fears, a wild litany of nightmare and lament. My nation invaded, enemies on the rampage, bodies in piles, slavery and abasement. Heaven swallowed the smoke. Uh, So yes, that's where I'm at with things and I also feel... In a way, this is why its history can be uh, really important in um, cultivating this sem- sense of empathy rather than nursing this sense of grievance in response to history-changing uh, events and uh, one's interpretations of history. It's so important to reflect on the realities of war and especially um, for us in these modern times rather than in Beowulf's time. That often means disengaging from the, the the great mythic narrative of the ancestral war that informs our understandings of war and justice and what is peace and who is a democracy and who is a dictatorship, etc. And that is, of course, World War Two. And we've seen tropes and narratives from World War Two deployed in the midst of this conflict in the uh, Israel-Gaza crisis. Benjamin Netanyahu might have said, this is our Pearl Harbor. Various of the Hamas fighters have been described as Nazis, etc. So the narratives of World War II find their way in this sort of flood of images and pre-cooked narratives in a way that can be quite mythical and difficult to disentangle. And the the I guess the the, the real stories of World War II that have also generated 
uh, mythic, not in a derogatory way, but in a like mythic in the sense of psychologically significant, culturally formative narratives uh, of this great war very much shape our understandings of war and war crimes and diplomatic institutions. They shape the form of the United Nations. They shape the patterns of mobilizations of the public emotionally and through information campaigns and, and, and what not behind a war. They shape our understandings of appeasement and democracy and autocracy. And of course, the results of that war uh, shape the very institutions of the United Nations. The five permanent members of the United Nations were the successful or the primary successful empire allies of World War II, France, Britain, the United States, China and the Soviet Union initially and later the Russian Federation as its successor state. And as it happens, I have been reading a book by a very distinguished British historian, uh, Richard Overy. I think it's Sir Richard Overy, but I'm not going to worry about British titles here in post-colonial Australia. Um, But Richard Overy's book, Blood and Ruins, The Great Imperial War, 1931 to 1945. And as all these events unfold, as we try to make sense of what it's like to live mindfully with history in a time of war, I very much recommend reading this book, Uh, not least because I was listening to another podcast with Richard Overy during the week in which Richard Overy said, was asked, you know, what books should we read? What books have been most important to inform your understanding of this history of World War II, the Great Imperial War, 1931-1945? And Richard Overy recommended John Darwin's After Tamerlan, which I have spoken about previously on the podcast. And on the uh, front of his book, it says, It is a towering achievement, a masterpiece that will change the way we talk about the war. And I won't go into the details of this in today's podcast. I may well do a podcast specifically about this book uh, in the near future. This book was only published in 2021, so it's still very new. But you can read just in the subtitle of the book, The Great Imperial War, 1931 to 1945, how he fundamentally reframes the story. It is not the Second World War, and the Second World War didn't begin in 1939. It began in 1931 uh, in the conflict between Japan and China. And it was a... Uh, conflict between challenger nation empires and established nation empires and it's an absolutely magnificent book i highly recommend it and it is a profound and deep reflection on on the reality of war 
rather than getting carried away with talking about World War Three or throwing terms around a little bit too loosely to describe uh, other parties to different conflicts. I highly recommend any listeners to the podcast to uh, check out from your library or bookshop or online bookstore Richard Overy's Blood and Ruins, The Great Imperial War. And uh, I think I might be doing a podcast on that in the near future. So that is my reflections on war and mindful history in a time of war. Uh, But before I go, let me read, perhaps appropriately, uh, from a poem by Vislav Zarsimborska, winner of the Nobel Prize in 1996. To harken back to my Nobel Prize series, do go back and check them out there. If you're new to the podcast, I've done a whole series on the Nobel Prize for Literature and various winners of that, including the uh, 50th anniversary of Patrick White, the only Australian or British Australian to win the uh, Nobel Prize. Uh, But this is a relatively brief poem from Vislava Simborska that I think perhaps uh, captures something of my mood and feelings uh, about uh, the situation we all find ourselves in of living in a time of war. After every war, someone has to tidy up. Things won't pick themselves up after all. Someone has to shovel the rubble to the roadsides so the carts loaded with corpses can get by. Someone has to trudge through sludge and ashes, through the sofa springs, the shards of glass, the bloody rags. Someone has to lug the post to prop the wall. Someone has to glaze the window, set the door in its frame. No sound bites, no photo opportunities, and it takes years. All the cameras have gone to other wars. The bridges need to be rebuilt, the railroad stations too. Shirt sleeves will be rolled to shreds. Someone, broom in hand, still remembers how it was. Someone else listens, nodding his unshattered head. But others are bound to be bustling nearby who'll find all that a little boring. From time to time, someone still must dig up a rusted argument from underneath a bush and haul it off to the dump. Those who knew what this was all about must make way for those who know little and less than that. And at last, nothing less than nothing. Someone has to lie there in the grass that covers up the causes and effects with a storm, with a cornstalk in his teeth, gawking at clouds. I hope you enjoyed that a wonderful piece of poetry by the great Polish poet Wisława Zimborska. May her memory be honoured and do take care of yourself. Show compassion for even those you disagree with in these times of war. Find a way back 
to dialogue and diplomacy. And remember to stay sane and and do remember what thou lovest well will not be reft from thee. Bye now.